This episode of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Larry Ostola, and today I have the pleasure to speak to Robert Banks about his history of shipbuilding at Point Frederick on Lake Ontario and its legacy. Robert Banks is a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada and the University of Toronto. A former pilot, he served as a flight surgeon with the Snowbirds and specialized in aerospace medicine, a field where he's known for his research and his role as an investigator of the Space Shuttle Columbia crash. A prolific author, he's published over 30 scientific papers and book chapters and has a long-standing interest in the history of Ontario and Canada. Bob, many thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Larry. It's good to be here. Thank you. So, Bob, for for listeners who may not be familiar with the Kingston area, situate us a bit geographically. Where where is Point Frederick and why was it chosen as a location for a naval dockyard? What was its strategic significance? Kingston, Ontario was um, at the very eastern end of the Great Lakes, the five Great Lakes that separate Canada and the United States. And um, that is where all of the water from the Great Lakes pours into the St. Lawrence River, and goes downhill to the Atlantic Ocean, goes past Montreal and Quebec. Um, In the old days, before roads, uh, historically, supplies came the other way, came up that river into Lake Ontario. The Kingston is right at the very end. It's kind of at a choke point where the Lake Ontario ends and the St. Lawrence River begins. And because it's a choke point, it could... A control of that choke point, particularly in a war, would affect the delivery of supplies from England, for example, to Niagara, which would have to be past that point. So the complication, uh, it, it is a strategic location for that reason, and uh, whoever controls it controls would control the supply lines. The complication there, though, is that there's two channels. There's a north and a south channel, so it's not that easy. Kingston is by the north channel. And uh, the Point Frederick Peninsula is located across the Cataraqui River from Kingston. So it's a 100-acre peninsula near Kingston, and it's close to the North Channel. So, Bob, in your book, you point out that historically uh, there was a significant Indigenous presence on the point. And then you mentioned that the French arrived in the early 1670s, and they were really the first to establish a fortification, which they named Fort Frontenac. And then later in the 18th century, they also engaged in, in some early shipbuilding. There's then, in terms of the history of the point, a bit of a hiatus until 1788 when the governor of the province of Quebec, uh, Lord Dorchester, decides that Point Frederick will serve as the base for the provincial marine and a naval dockyard starts to get laid out. What was Dorchester's logic and and what did the dockyard consist of? Well, Dorchester, uh, whose name before he became a baron was Guy Carleton, 10 years before had um, understood the importance of the um, location. And 10 years before, he'd established a dockyard on the South Channel on an island called Carleton Island, named after him. But when the Revolutionary War ended and the border was settled, Carleton Island fell on the American side of the border. 
So he needed a place on the north side um, where he could operate from in order to secure the strategic location. So Kingston was a good location, and Point Frederick was even better because next to Point Frederick, which is between um, Fort Henry, which many people have visited, tourist area, it's between Point Frederick and Point Henry, have Navy Bay next to it. And that was an ideal area to build ships. So uh, he ordered that in uh, 1788, and uh, the move was made. But I should point out that the first construction was in 1783-84, and it was the dockyard that still exists and still serves the Royal Military College of Canada, which occupies that peninsula. Hmm, So a bit of an ongoing history then, but... The dockyard gets established and something called the Provincial Marine is set up there. What were the responsibilities of the Provincial Marine? Provincial Marine was also a creation of Guy Carleton. Uh, During the Revolutionary War, he was an army officer, but he needed a navy to help his army get around. And he uh, chose not to involve the Royal Navy. And instead, he created an army navy. And that's what the Provincial Marine was. It was kind of an informal sort of navy for the Great Lakes, made up of provincials, people who lived locally by and large, sometimes retired naval officers from the Royal Navy, but often merchant merchant officers. And they they, um, operated uh, everywhere from the uh, Atlantic coast um, to the Great Lakes. And on Lake Ontario, they began at Oswego. That's where they set up their first base. Then they went to Carleton Island. Then they went to eventually... Point Frederick in 1788. Their responsibilities were to look after the army, to transport the army and their supplies. And when they weren't doing that, help civilians, help settlers um, go to where they had to go to settle. Speaking of settlement, uh, one of the aspects of the dockyard that you highlight in your book that I found really interesting was that much of the early labor for the dockyard came from Quebec. And how did French-speaking workers wind up in Kingston? Well, um, Lake Ontario was French before it was English. Um, So Fort Frontenac was French. The French Navy operated on Lake Ontario before the English came. Um, Settlements, there were French settlements at Niagara and, of course, at Fort Frontenac in Toronto, actually. And uh, so the French were already there. Um, They, um, when the British, when uh, Upper Canada or Canada became, Ontario, today's Ontario became British territory, many of the French remained. But um, the skilled shipwrights of Quebec City, and Quebec City had a very well-established industry in shipbuilding, building these big wooden sailing ships. They had a lot of talent there. And that talent, uh, a little bit at first, drifted towards Lake Ontario and populated these early yards. So Carleton Island, for example, the dockyard there was mostly French. They mostly spoke French in the dockyard. And when they moved to uh, Point Frederick in 1788, it, it was two senior French officers who, des- who designed and laid out the early dockyard. And uh, much of the workforce uh, was thought to speak French. Well, and in fact, uh, I wanted to follow up on one of the personalities that you mentioned, uh, Bob. In terms of the French presence, you, you highlight an individual uh, by the name of Captain René Laforce. Tell us a little bit about his career. Absolutely remarkable man. Uh, René Laforce was born in La Prairie in uh, 1728, but uh, immediately their family moved to Niagara. His father was the storekeeper at Fort Niagara, and he spent his childhood really growing up on the frontier 
um, learning all about frontier things. He learned to speak indigenous languages. He became a sailor, shipwright, carpenter, uh, a cartographer, meaning map maker. Um, and by the time uh, the, eight, the 1750s came around, he was a naval officer with the French Navy, as well as a merchant mariner. And uh, he sailed on Lake Ontario uh, and really created the first um, accurate map of Lake Ontario. Uh, later on, he fought against, fought for the French against the English at Oswego. He defended Fort Frontenac against the British attack, 1758. He escaped uh, and was part of a last stand uh, during the, the conquest, late during that period, at Fort Levi near Prescott. Um, he eventually um, was found on the ramparts of Quebec City, fighting for the British against the Americans during the invasion of 1775, and subsequently became Commodore of the Lakes for the Provincial Marine after that point. And he shows up again and again. I mean, uh, he deserves a book, honestly. He's, uh, he's quite a Canadian, French-Canadian persona. That's really quite an amazing career that he had, and he found himself at at the center of a lot of the most significant events of that period, so that's quite something. But uh, I wanted to also ask you about shipbuilding itself, because in the book, you mentioned a couple of times that the use of unseasoned wood and uh, the deterioration that that caused in vessels seems to have been a really serious problem, and in fact, one of the vessels on the lake, uh, Lake Ontario, HMS Speedy, even went down. It was lost on the lake. What happened to it, and why would they be using unseasoned wood? Well, uh, the practice uh, early on in uh, Canada was to, uh, if you wanted wood, was to go into the woods and cut down a big tree and leave it there for a period of time to cure. Um, Later on, when things got better developed, there were curing sheds, and there were ways to dry wood out. But dry wood would resist rot. Green wood would rot. And so... um, that was a lot of inventory to leave in the woods in those days when wood was in high demand. So the it became normalized, normal behavior, to cut down green timber and build ships with it right away. And, and that's what was happening at the Provincial Marine at Point Frederick shipyard. The Speedy and its sister ship, the Swift, were both built during the during uh, summer of 1798. And the Speedy in particular began leaking within a year. It was, it was a real problem. And, and they knew what was causing it. They just didn't have cured wood. So they patched it up and uh, they did their best. And a few years later, just a few years in 1804, uh, the captain of the Speedy, Thomas Paxton, who, had, who was the only, really the only captain of the Speedy during its life, was ordered to go to, to York to help transport uh, officials to a trial in Newcastle. And he resisted that. He strenuously, he, he knew he had a bad, the boat was not really seaworthy. He made it to York. He embarked with the court and with other passengers to Newcastle, and they were all lost on the lake and uh, really no trace of them found. Uh, Thomas Paxton lived on Point Frederick with his wife and seven children, and they were left destitute, as were other families from that tragedy. So an early early marine tragedy on, on Lake Ontario. So moving into the period just prior to the War of 1812, there's what I would call a shipbuilding arms race uh, that begins on the Great Lakes. What was the significance of having naval superiority, not only on Lake Ontario, but on the other Great Lakes? Why, why was that important? 
Well, Lake Ontario was really important. Um, the Americans had not shown much interest in controlling Lake Ontario until around 1807, a few years before the War of 1812. And they they had a purpose-built, purpose-built warship, the Oneida, that was built. And that got the British attention, and they began to um, uh, build the Royal George, which uh, was a counter to it. Um, things settled down, but at the time of the War of 1812, they started back up. And as you pointed out, a shipbuilder's war occurred. It was critical to control Lake Ontario first because everything going west from Britain had to go through Lake Ontario. So that included Lake Erie because, of course, there were settlements at Detroit. And um, so Lake Ontario, Lake Erie um, had to really be controlled. The British did lose Lake Erie early in, in that war, but Lake Ontario remained in dispute through the entire time. If the British or the Americans alternatively had lost control of Lake Ontario, it would have been hard for either side to reinforce um, their troops on the Niagara Peninsula, more so for the British, because the British were dependent on a supply line that went up the St. Lawrence to and through Lake Ontario. Not as bad for the Americans. So basically, if you can succeed in, in getting control of the lake, you've essentially severed the lifeline to the west, basically. Yes, if the Americans had taken control of Lake Ontario, that would have severed or reduced any supplies and troops that could have gotten west of Kingston. Okay, so, well, the, the war finally does come and it breaks out in June of 1812 and, and the first American action against Kingston takes place in November of 1812. And so as a result of the war, uh, Activity in the dockyard explodes and hundreds of laborers and skilled workers are recruited. So paint us a little bit of a picture of what the dockyard would have been like at that time and what what it would have looked like. And just tell us how large the operation actually was. Well, at first, the provincial marine, um, which was really not, it was more of a merchant marine, really, than a a war fighting uh, navy, although they did mount guns, but they were in pretty bad shape pretty much decrepit. And um, they had didn't have enough sailors. They didn't have enough capable ships. But nevertheless, they went onto the lake and they did their best. And there were a couple of early actions that involved them. The city of Kingston filled with people right away. They had soldiers um, and workers. And Isaac Brock himself, uh, a few weeks before he was killed at Niagara, visited Kingston, ordered Point Frederick cleared of trees because where Fort Henry is today, um, uh, I think I said Fort Frederick, I meant Fort Fort, uh, Point Henry, um, was covered in trees. He ordered them all cleared. He ordered the wood used to build um, uh, uh, artillery batteries, blockhouses, palisades, to basically arm and defend Kingston. And um, so many people showed up. Um, the Provincial Marine was without sailors, and uh, the Newfoundland, Royal Newfoundland Fencibles showed up, uh, to uh, the militia showed up, and were quickly turned into sailors, and the Provincial Marine was in action. But as the war progressed, the yard had to expand greatly. It eventually reached 2,500 in the year of 2000 to 2,500 people. That included families. It included a hospital Uh, Many log-built buildings, mold lofts, all sorts of all the things you need to build ships. And many of the officers had been educated at Portsmouth, where the buildings were made of stone. 
Not here. They had to build a, buildings of logs because that's what they had and wood. And they began to build ships. And uh, as, as the complexity of the vessels and the size of them got bigger, so did the yard. So, so you've got a huge number of people. You've got accommodation for those people and all the, the foodstuffs that they would need. But you also have enormous quantities of supplies that you actually need to construct the ships. Uh, what were some of the major uh, types of goods that were flowing through the dockyard? Anything made of metal. Um, there were no um, there were no mines nearby that could be used. So if you think of cannons and anchors and spikes that would hold the keel together, hold the vessel together, um, pots, anything at all made of metal had to be shipped in. Rope. There were no rope works um, in um, west of Montreal, uh, so rope had to be brought in. And when you get to first first rate vessels, really big vessels like St. Lawrence, which we'll talk about in a minute, the diameter of the ropes were 20 inches in diameter. These were enormous ropes. And uh, they so they shipped everything in, even food. They could get food locally to some degree, but not always. So they had to uh, bring in food as well. They actually even shipped a whole ship. Um, so a complete frigate was built in Chatham in England, and the whole ship was broken into sections, shipped across the ocean and up the St. Lawrence River to Point Frederick. It's, it's almost like I- Ikea in shipbuilding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I didn't think of that, but you're right. So, so things get serious, and, and the Royal Navy uh, finally takes command uh, of the dockyard from the Provincial Marine in May of 1813 uh, with the arrival of Commodore James Yeo. And the naval arms race that I mentioned a little while ago continues with each side building larger and larger ships. The Americans build one called the General Pike, named after Zebulon Pike, who was killed at the Battle of York. Uh, But Point Frederick had a bit of an advantage uh, with respect to shipbuilding, didn't it? Well, it sure did. And this was something I hadn't, uh, I I didn't learn about until I did the research for this book. Um, um, The Harbor at Sackett, so the U.S. Naval Station was at Sackett's Harbor, or Sackett's is the short name for it, uh, in, today in New York State, uh, not too far from the South Channel of the opening to Lake Ontario. Um, their problem was they had a shallow harbor. The other harbor they had, Oswego, had the same problem. It had a sand bank that uh, blocked part of the harbor, nine feet of water in Oswego, about 13 to 14 feet in Sackett's Harbor. And Isaac Chauncey, the American commander, uh, was actually having trouble launching one of his ships in particular. And and you found out about that through some spies he sent over. These were uh, these were carpenter spies who went over and worked in the American yards and brought them back intelligence. So you knew that the Americans were going to have a lot of trouble building really big ships, first-rate ships, because of the shallowness of Sackett's Harbor. Now, there were were other solutions, but um, they weren't initially followed. So Yeo began to build bigger and bigger ships. And um, he he had built two large frigates, and then he got to a point where he wanted something even bigger. He wanted to build a ship as big as Nelson's Victory. And uh, that's what he did. 
Well, and in fact, that's that's one aspect of this history that I find fascinating. I mean, what became the HMS St. Lawrence, 112-gun ship, which was so large that it really wouldn't have been out of place in the line of battle uh, in a major fleet action of the 19th century. And when you think of Lake Ontario, you don't typically think of a vessel that big. Uh, tell us the story of the St. Lawrence. Uh, it was an incredible technical accomplishment uh, of the time. Uh, the St. Lawrence was slightly larger than the Victory, actually. Um, it actually was configured for 104 guns, but uh, when uh, Yeo finally took it to onto Lake Ontario, it stuffed a few more guns on it and ended up with 112 in three decks. Um, so it was an incredible accomplishment. Um, it um, tied up all of the supply chain all the way down the St. Lawrence River for months. Um, it, was, it got very difficult to get anything else up the St. Lawrence River from Montreal because so much was going into building this vessel. Um, it probably wouldn't have done well in, in, uh, on, on the ocean because the hull was modified uh, for uh, fresher waters. But it did need 25 feet of depth. So a ship like that couldn't be built at Sackett's Harbor. That sort of point I was making before. Uh, in Navy Bay, there were 27, maybe 30 feet of water right offshore. It was a, a perfect selection, actually, for a dockyard, but probably better than any other harbor on the north shore of Lake Ontario. It was a very fortuitous selection. So um, Yeo decided he was going to outbuild, not in quantity, but in quality and in size, ships. So he started to build these big ships, and the St. Lawrence was it. I found this really surprising. So after the war, the St. Lawrence sits in the water and eventually it gets sold at auction, but they only realize the massive price of 25 pounds for the vessel. How, how did that happen? <laughs> well, some people have estimated that the, um, uh, that the ship cost a half million pounds to build. Uh, in, in their currency. So um, I, I don't know how accurate that, that seems like a lot, but um, 25 pounds was really, um, they were just happy to get it out of there. You, you're correct. It, it sat there in the yard until um, 1834. And in fact, today at the Royal Military College, there is a pier called the St. Lawrence Pier, uh, which is still there. It was built after the war specifically to house the St. Lawrence, and you can go there today and see it, and that's where the St. Lawrence was docked. But finally, it was sold to a Kingston Kingston merchant who uh, towed it away, and uh, it formed a um, a kind of a dock over in the Kingston side for some time. Oh, just amazing. Uh, but but speaking of that, so so we get through the War of eighteen twelve, and uh, and in fact, I just wanted to get back to the St. Lawrence for a second. I was surprised that the American Admiral Isaac Chauncey actually visited Kingston at the end of the war and was entertained on board the St. Lawrence. I thought that was fascinating. But tell us a little bit about what happened to the dockyard after the war. And when did operations finally stop or cease at the dockyard? Uh, well, let me just add one more thing to, as an intro to, to, to the answer. And that is on the 16th of October, 1814, the St. Lawrence did go on to Lake Ontario with all the guns ready um, the two large frigates, the Princess Charlotte and the Prince Regent, were also in company, and most of the rest of the warships were in. It must have been an incredible scene. 
And um, they went out onto the lake. Up until that time, the Americans uh, dominated the lake. But the U.S. Navy, uh, on sighting the St. Lawrence, withdrew into port and started moving guns ashore in preparation to defend their port against the British. Meanwhile, um, uh, Yeo ordered two hours of gun drill as soon as he left the port, and then he sailed for Niagara with fresh troops and supplies for the troops in Niagara. And four days after he left Navy Bay, the um, uh, general commanding the troops at Fort Erie made the decision to withdraw from Canada. And uh, that was the end of those two events. When he learned that sales on Lake Ontario were not American sales, he realized that he couldn't stay or he couldn't advance any further, and they withdrew. Um, the um, So the, the vessel continued to sail that winter, and then, of course, it went into the yard, and it was dismantled for the winter, as they would do. And um, uh, now... Uh, also, uh, um, Yeo had, had two more just like it on the stocks getting ready for 2015, uh, for 1815. Had the war gone into 1815, there would have been two more first rates sail, sailed on Lake Ontario with the British. You know, uh, Larry, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us what happened after the war. After the war, the um, uh, the British decided they wanted to maintain the, the fleet, uh, the capability of the fleet. So they began to posture Point Frederick as if it might be a permanent base. And so they began to replace, uh, first of all, the old wooden buildings with some stone buildings. They put the fleet in ordinary, which meant that they moored them in the bay initially and then tied them up alongside. They ventilated them. They protected them. These ships were built of pretty green wood, and they had all the same problems as before. So they had a staff that basically tried to keep them afloat and keep them ready. Meanwhile, all the supplies, the cannons, the yards, all of those, all the rest of it, were stored ashore. And that led to the building of the Stone Frigate. It's a dormitory at the Royal Military College today, where they would store all of the naval gear in the off-season and, and well they were going through this period of mothballing the fleet. This continued until the demilitarization of the Great Lakes, which occurred in 1817. And then, and then they, they actually didn't trust each other very much, um, and the British especially didn't trust the Americans. So they continued trying to, at least in theory, keep the fleet somewhat capable into the 1820s until finally they, they sort of gave up when the Rideau Canal was finished. And, and they, they no longer needed a standing fleet. Well, I think it's really fascinating. And I think that many listeners would be surprised to learn uh, that there was a fleet that, that was that large and that impressive on Lake Ontario. But it's, it seems to be almost a chapter of our past that has largely uh, been forgotten. So if an observer or a keen, a keen investigator were to go to Point Frederick today, what vestiges of the dockyard remain on the landscape. And uh, then after, I'd like you to speak a little bit, maybe about the legacy of Point Frederick and the activity that took place there. Well, um, today uh, on the grounds, um, there are only two objects that uh, survive from the War of 1812 itself. And they are two cannons. They're buried at the RMC dockyard gate. Um, it's on the campus and it's an old metal gate uh, near a section of stone wall, and there are two buried cannons. 
uh, that are there. They were put there in 1814 during the War of 1812. Other than that, um, all of the other artifacts are underground. Now, when the Navy, the Royal Navy started to replace the old wooden buildings with stone, some of those buildings remain. Uh, first of all, the St. Lawrence Pier remains. Um, it's really a monument to the St. Lawrence itself, the HMS St. Lawrence. The Stone Frigate was built in 1820. It still remains and is still useful. Within the Commandant's residence is are the stone walls of a building that was built for the surgeon, the naval surgeon, uh, who operated out of a hospital which was made of wood and which is long gone. Uh, the Commandant's guest house is the old cookhouse for the hospital. So those are, are sort of it. But I, I return once more to the Provincial Marine Dock, the other dock, the smaller dock, that was built in 1783-84 that winter. That was the first structure, uh, the rock that filled that dock, and it's still there, and it's still a dock. And there are there are ships underwater as well, remains of ships, timbers, and so on, that still remain underwater? Yes. In uh, Dead Man's Bay, there are uh, the two frigates um, are there. They rest uh, underwater there. Um, near the, one of the sports fields in Navy Bay, it's, uh, reclaimed land is, is another wreck. Um, the St. Lawrence, some of its timbers can be found on the Kingston side. And um, there are slipways and uh, various wharves that can be seen um, from the air, actually, um, sometimes when the water is clear, which uh, given our uh, problems with zebra mussels on Lake Ontario, the water is clear quite a lot. And um, that's what those mussels have done. So um, th there are a lot of artifacts. Archaeologists have been active. Um, Sue Baisley from Kingston has um, had studies all over the point, and it has a rich archaeological um, life um, still. So what, in your view, should we take away from this history at Point Frederick? I mean, really important uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries, what, what, what do you think it all meant? The legacy, which is part of the subtitle of this book, um, the legacy of Point Frederick is that the Americans were denied control of Lake Ontario at a critical time in our country's history. Um, the country was being invaded at that time, and a young admiral or commodore, he was actually not an admiral, he was a commodore, made a decision to build big ships, and that worked. He ended up winning control of the lake at a critical time, and that is what makes Point Frederick historically significant. The Point Frederick today is the home of the Royal Military College of Canada, and the women and men who uh, volunteer to join the military and go to the Royal Military College to be educated as officers um, have inherited on the grounds around them a rich legacy that includes really DNA of their ancestors, the French Canadians who built the ships, the English loyalist citizens who were there, and, and even the indigenous who populated um, the peninsula um, as a campground and hunting area. Um, it is a rich legacy that runs in our blood, I believe. I'm part French Canadian, my mother was French Canadian, and I have a rich uh, heritage from French Canada, and I'm very proud, and I'll be surprised if one of my um, ancestors wasn't building uh, ships on uh, Point Frederick. Um, so it, it is a national legacy. It's a Kingston legacy. 
And uh, it's a legacy that we should all be proud of and we should protect, I think. Well, Bob, on that note, uh, I'd like to thank you very sincerely for having taken the time this afternoon to speak to me about your work uh, on Point Frederick and its importance in terms of the history of our country. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for having me. My guest today was Robert Banks. His book, Warriors and Warships, Conflict on the Great Lakes and the Legacy of Point Frederick, was published by Dundurn Press in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. You can also send us an email at info at This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Larry Ostola. This interview was recorded on May the 9th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press journal team, who also support the Champlain Society. Mm-hmm.